Tonight's episode of Legacy Battle is brought to you by Atlas Benefits. Atlas Benefits has solutions for your insurance needs. Atlas Benefits can help you obtain Medicare, health, or life insurance, and employee benefits. You can find them on the web at www.atlasbenefits.com. Or you can contact Rob Ducey or Roy Smith at 727-600-2892 and mention Legacy Battle Podcast. Atlas Benefits has all the solutions for your insurance needs. Enjoy the show. This is Legacy Battle. Make sure you hit subscribe on YouTube, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Join the Facebook group. I'm Michael Adams, creator of Legacy Battle. My panelists tonight from the Gridiron Battle Zone, Brian King, Penn State Collegiate All-Star, Kevin Adams, Ball State Athlete, Paul Havocott. And normally we have a All-Star Pro Bowler, Hall of Famer here. Tonight, something a little different. We got, we got a gentleman here. He starred in TV and films to include The Cutting Edge, Fire in the Sky, Memphis Bell. Did some guest spots on Two and a Half Men, Hardball, one of Kevin's favorite movies there, and Eight Men Out, which is going to come up tonight in our, in our debate, in which he played Shoeless Joe Jackson. He's received over 35 awards for his work. He has a new movie coming out February 10th. It's a Manson Brothers Midnight Zombie Massacre. You know, zombie movies is all the rage nowadays. And that's going to be released in 10 cities and on demand. So make sure you hit that up next Friday night, uh, the 10th of September, and watch his movie on demand. And I'm sure he'll appreciate that. So as I was saying, our guest is actor D.B. Sweeney. D.B., thank you for being here. Thank you. Good to be on. Oh, this is like a, a, a I don't uh, like fan up very often on this show, but I'm definitely fanning up over this one. So I, I really appreciate it. But so our debate tonight is going to be the greatest baseball film in the drama category, which is a different debate for the four of us. As I said earlier, we always just uh, debate in sports. So this is sports movies. It's still in our genre. So, you know, if a thousand of you are watching this like last month, stay tuned because this is going to be good. And we're going to start out tonight with Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams is a classic. Everybody knows this movie. Uh, released May 5th, 1989. Costner starred as uh, a farmer named Ray. One day he's walking through uh, his farm. Uh, here's a voice. If you build it, he will come. Um, he envisions a baseball field in the middle of his cornfield and shoeless Joe Jackson uh, standing in the middle. So he built the field. While telling his wife about the White Sox scandal, uh, 1919 scandal, and sure enough, Shoeless Joe appears and brings the 1919 White Sox team to his field. Um, no one outside of Ray's family can see the players, and you know they're facing bankruptcy with their farm. Um, you know, this field attracted multiple ghosts of baseball legends. Um, his brother-in-law tried to convince him to sell the farm. You know, Ray goes on a field trip to get Terrence Mann, a writer, after him and his wife had the same dream that, you know, they were uh, going to a baseball game at Fenway Park together. And both of them hear a voice while they're at the game saying, go the distance at that game. And uh, they saw Archie Graham's stats, who was a baseball player that only played one game um, for the Giants. Um, but he had passed a few years earlier than that. So on the way back, uh, they pick up a young hitchhiker um, who actually ended up being a young Archie Graham. And they brought him back to Iowa uh, to raise baseball field. Um, Ray was estranged from his father. He never got to reconcile their issues before he passed. Um, his brother-in-law and him one day get into a scuffle, uh, knock his daughter off the bleachers. Um, at, at this point, Archie Graham, who took a different career in the medical field, steps off the field and turns into his old self um, and helps the daughter. And he gave up his chance to play baseball with these legends on this uh, magical field. Um, at that point is when everyone can see the baseball players and it basically saved, saved his farm, saved his family. Um, players exit the, uh, the field uh, out in the outfield 
uh, where the corn stock, stocks are. Um, Terrence Mann goes with them. Uh, one player is left behind, and it's actually Ray's father, and asks Ray to play catch. Um, you know, this this movie is a classic. It's great. It was nominated for three Academy Awards. Best Picture was one of them. Um, it was uh, selected uh, by the National Film Registry as being culturally, culturally historically, um, and aesthetically significant. Uh, the budget for this movie was only 15 mil. Uh, brought in 84.4 mil um, at the box office. Um, by the film's 20th anniversary, approximately 65,000 people visit this baseball field annually. That's how much of an impact this this movie has had on this country. Um, and the MLB just recently had a game there on August 12th. Chicago White Sox and the Yankees played a game there uh, at the same location where this field was at in the movie. Kevin Costner was there to welcome them onto the field as they entered the field from the Cornstalk outfield wall. I got chills literally when I watched that opening. It was one of the best openings I've ever seen to a sporting event. Um, Bleacher Report listed this as number three as the best all-time movie um, for baseball. None of the other movies we're talking about tonight are on that list. And Ranker.com did the 50 greatest sports drama movies, listed this number six, and it was the only baseball movie in the top nine. None of your movies were were even mentioned in the top ten. Um, so this has got to be the best baseball drama movie. So they call this movie the movie that can make men cry. I mean, it, it, it gets emotional. DB, I, I, I want to ask you about this. Ray Liotta plays Shoeless Joe Jackson, and it seems like his character of Shoeless Joe is, like, completely different than yours. I mean, it, two different characters, but you're playing the same person. So what was your thoughts on on his choice and his persona of, of Shoeless Joe, and what do you think of the movie? I love the movie. I think it's, uh, you know, it's a really great movie. Um, in many ways, though, it's not really a baseball movie because, you know, it's it's a fathers and sons movie. And uh, the baseball in it is very minimal and actually not very good. And, you know, I think, you know, Ray uh, is not a baseball player and he really didn't have time to prepare from what I've heard. So, you know, he, his Shoeless Joe is not, you know, I'm, I, when I played him, I batted lefty and I threw righty the way Shoeless Joe did. And Ray had it backwards. He was batting righty and throwing lefty and. You know, and, and just the other players they had on the field, in my opinion, were did not look like very good baseball players. So with that said, though, I think it's a phenomenal movie. And and Kevin Costner is tremendous in it. And Tim Busfield is great. And James Earl Jones. And, you know, all the actors are tremendous. And, uh, you know, Amy Madigan. And, you know, I mean, up and down the cast, it's, it's one of the best acted movies. But it's not really a baseball movie. I mean, there's really no baseball moment in it that really uh, turns the action of the story. Paul, I'm not going to ask a lot of questions of my panels tonight because I want to keep this a DB, but Paul, you are a high caliber softball player in the state of Florida. How hard, how much time would an actor need to learn to bat the opposite hand of what he's been batting his whole life, in your opinion? Yeah, you have to get the reps down so you don't look so stiff and uncomfortable doing it. So, I mean, I... I think the only way to do it is have some pitches thrown to you, get get at least comfortable with it. But it would take it would take a while. And I know what DB is saying. It's it's hard to fake it. And so if you got that awkward movement and people don't believe you could actually hit a ball, that could that will hurt the uh, credibility of the sports film there. And DB, I was going to give you credit for hitting lefty. Did you have to learn to hit lefty, or were you a lefty naturally? Yeah, I, I played baseball. You know, I played uh, one year of college baseball. I played. Actually, after this movie, I played one year pro in uh, in Australia for the Perth Heat. Uh, I was always a right-handed hitter and a right-handed thrower. And uh, John Sales, the director, eight men out, said, uh, "You know, what do you think you can do? Can you learn to hit lefty?" And I said, uh, "I don't, I don't think so. I mean, not, you know, I don't want this to be Pride of the Yankees. You know, one of the other movies that we're going to talk about, <laughs> uh, which is another great drama, which is not really a baseball movie either." Um, <laughs> And uh, so anyway, uh, uh, you know, he said, well, do what you can. And I had about five and a half months and I spent the whole time, you know, I turned down another movie and I, and I spent the whole time working on my swing. And the last two months before we filmed Eight Men Out, I spent with the Kenosha Twins in uh, the Midwest League. And I rode around on the buses, dressed for every game, took BP and ended up getting one at bat at the end, just like Moonlight Graham. So, uh, you know, it was, it was a lot of tie ins between my actual life and this movie. I know uh, it was Billy Crystal once. He got to play in a preseason game for the Yankees and uh, pitched uh, against the Pirates. 
so he got the bat once too and you know he said that was just like the greatest moment of his life so that that's cool well i pitched the perfect game too against the pirates <laughs> no he didn't pitch he got the, he got the hit once he got, uh, okay. he got the bat yeah He's they, joking, man. Jeter, <laughs> Jeter told him to swing at the first pitch, so he did, and he, he popped out. But, you know, he made contact against professional, well, Pirates. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> but, Paul, let's move on to your movie, The Natural. Yeah, The Natural's from 84. It was nominated for four Academy Awards and a Golden Globe. Most of it was filmed at War Memorial Stadium in Buffalo. But um, this movie's not just a great baseball movie. It's just a great sports movie. I mean, it's got probably, in my opinion, the best – music the soundtrack of all the movies we're talking about you got your father and son moments this movie was preceded the field of dreams so you had a little bit of a, a touching father son moment with this you got like the old rookie like bull durham in this you got underdog heroism like rudy in this you got a, a great kim basinger scene in a fur coat you got uh you know some corruption in baseball like eight men out and if you got, you know, if people like the drama of Kurt Schilling's bloody sock in the World Series that one year, you kind of have that with this, only it's in the form of like a bloody uh, shirt and belly in his last at bat. But we're, we're introduced to Roy Hobbs. He's a, a pitching prospect. You know, he's opening the movies, playing father with his, playing catch with his father in the backyard. His father ends up dying of a heart attack under a tree. Later on, that tree struck by lightning. And of course, why not? He takes one of the branches and makes the, the famous Wonder Boy bat out of it with the lightning bolt insignia. So he gets called uh, by the Cubs at the age of 19. So he sneaks off, throws some rocks at his childhood sweetheart's window, which is uh, Iris, played by Glenn Close. Tells her the good news. They kind of sneak off uh, for some young teenage love, which isn't shown on camera, but that comes back later on, as that sort of thing always does. So you kind of fast forward. They're going. They're on a train with, I guess, what's his agent. And he's, he's on the train with um, this guy named the Whammer, who kind of looks oddly similar to Babe Ruth. Uh, Roy's agent. Uh, you got kind of like a, an agent there that makes a bet that uh, Roy can strike out this Whammer with three pitches. So this, this reporter, Max Mercy, who's played by Robert Duvall, sort of witnesses a, a suit and tie wearing Whammer strike out on three pitches. And there's some foreshadowing going on there because during this time, they're reading the paper that all these top athletes are being murdered with a single silver bullet. So we see kind of a surprise evil casting of uh, Barbara Hershey playing, playing like the murderous temptress Harriet Bird. And then all of a sudden, 20 minutes into the film, you're slapped across the face in this like WTF moment because, because he strikes out the whammer, Harriet Bird turns uh, her attention to him and uh, basically shoots him in a hotel room. And uh, we think he's dead. But no, 16 years later, you're kind of going into a, into a dark a tunnel, going up to a dugout. There, apparently, there's no security because this uh, older but still very handsome uh, Roy Hobbs appears uh, to the New York Knights manager and kind of surprisingly part owner, uh, Pop Fisher, who's played by Wilford Brimley. He has a rocky start with the New York Knights. That's kind of an understatement, but in the first of three very key scenes, they finally give him a chance in the batting cages, and this dude hits bombs. Everybody's all like, whoa, you know, these, the echoes of it going off the seats. Problem is they got bump out in right field. He's dating uh, Mimo, who's played by Kim Basinger. But, of course, bump dies, and how's he die? He goes through the right field fence going after a fly ball. So Kim Basinger kind of moves, you know, on to uh, – you know, Pine Tar and uh, Roy Hobbs is bad, if you know what I mean. And that kind of puts him into a slump. He's uh, now just struggling, but he visits uh, good old Wrigley Field. And sort of in like an angelic scene, his childhood sweetheart stands up uh, and, you know, is all in white. It's kind of an unforgettable scene. And we've got epic scene number two here because he sees her. She's looking at about as angelic as Michael Adams' Facebook profile picture there. And he just hits this bomb into the clock at Wrigley Field smashing all the pieces of the clock and uh, they win the game and he's out of this slump. And so we go to, to the end of the movie here. We kind of find out through some backroom CD scenes with a great bad guy, um, Darren McGavin played by Gus Sands, that basically the ownership of this team wants the team to fail so they can take over full ownership from pop. So, you know, Roy ends up going into the hospital. He says, I got to play one more game on Monday night against Pittsburgh, the team that Pop Fisher is always bitching about losing to. 
So he's 0 for 2 that night, striking out, you know, looking terrible. And sure enough, childhood sweetheart uh, Iris slips a note into the dugout, basically says, hey, I have a 16-year-old son. He's your surprise. So Roy reads the note. He's all flustered, you know, and he goes up with runners on the corners, two outs. And that's epic scene number three. He smashes the lights out right in, I think, at center field. Very, very shoddy electrical work because for some reason the lights in the entire stadium seem to go down. And as he's rounding the bases, it rains on home plate, crushes the uh, the hearts of the criminals, and it warms all of ours. And then Pop gets to keep the team. Should have said sports. Show started. Hey man, got to see it it's from '84. So I think Mickey from uh, Rocky got it right when he said women weaken legs, and that's exactly what happened in The Natural. But uh, DB, I'm sure you've seen this film. I, I want to ask you about the score of it, um, written by the legend Randy Newman, who's just done so much in Hollywood. Like, as an actor, when you're watching your scenes, you're probably not seeing it with the music in it. Like, how much does that affect the, the, the take of a scene when they're, when they're putting in the background music? Well, there's no music when you're filming it. There's, there's, it's very quiet when you're filming. They, they want your dialogue to be clean. But, uh, you know, I think the natural is, uh, is, a, is the most mythic of all these stories that we're talking about, um, even though they all have mythic elements. It, it's the one that's trying most obviously to be a mythic story. And, and it's the most beautifully photographed, uh, although Ro uh, Robert Richardson shot Eight Men Out, and he's probably the best cameraman in Hollywood right now, director of photography. Uh, he's done all Quentin Tarantino's movies, and, you know, he's the man right now. But Caleb Deschanel was the director of photography on Natural. And, uh, you know, between his photography and, uh, and Randy Newman's music, uh, you kind of overlook how thin of a movie it is. And on a plot level, it's, you know, it's great performances, great characters, Great photography, great wardrobe, but it's a little bit hollow at the center for me. Um, I still enjoy watching chunks of it, but uh, I find it that it's overlong. And, uh, you know, I think that, that there's a better movie hiding inside the natural that they never made. That's an interesting take. I like that. Brian, let's, let's move to your movie here, Eight Men Out. All right, Eight Men Out. Well, this movie came out in 1988. Um, it was a dramatization of the 1919 Black Sox scandal. Um, it had plenty of star power. You know, John Cusack, uh, Charlie Sheen, Christopher Lloyd, John Mahoney, uh, David Stradhairn, uh, Michael Rooker, and of course, D.B. Sweeney as Shoeless Joe Jackson. Uh, this film starts on the eve of the 1919 World Series. Uh, the Chicago White Sox are huge favorites over the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, team owner Charlie Kaminsky uh, proclaimed that it was not whether or not the Sox would win, but just by how many games it would take. Uh, but Kaminsky had one fatal flaw, his treatment of his players. Um, he shortchanged pitcher uh, Eddie Seacott on a bonus. Um, he gave players flat champagne for their to celebrate their uh, winning the pennant. And, um, you know, this made the players very vulnerable uh, when they were approached by gamblers. Uh, to purposely lose the World Series in exchange for money. Uh, eight players ultimately accepted the offer. Um, after the World Series was lost, there was an investigation, then a trial. Uh, the players avoided jail time, but they were banned from the game forever. Um, the actors, scriptwriters, et cetera, all did an excellent, excellent job with this, uh, with this film. And they were sure to include the legendary scene uh, during which a young Chicago uh, street kid hollers out, say it ain't so, Joe, uh, to Joe Jackson as he leaves the, uh, the courthouse. So I, I think my favorite part of this movie was the, the interactions that Buck Weaver has, uh, who, was, who was played by John Cusack, uh, had with the, the, the Chicago street kids. Um, you know, he kind of really gave a sense of how conflicted that he was about aligning himself uh, with his compromised teammates and how the adult world kind of, you know, complicates the simple, innocent pleasures of life. Um, you know, I, I just, I love this movie all the way around. I love movies that take a, you know, take a true story and just sort of, you know, just lay it out for you and try to be, you know, as, as truthful uh, um, to, you know, how things actually were. I mean, I love the, 
um, the way that you, when you're watching, you feel like you're, you're back in 1919. You know, there just has that great feel to it. Um, it's just one of my all-time favorites. And, you know, it, and I think it accurately captures one of the most legendary, you know, notorious uh, stories in baseball history. So, Brian, you mentioned that this is one of the most historically accurate sports movies. You look at the movie like The Babe, like totally <laughs> inaccurate. And the movie I'm going to represent in a, in a little bit, Pride of the Yankees, not very accurate either. DB, this is your movie. I mean, tell, tell us about it, like maybe a little bit about, you know, filming it and just an all-star cast. It seemed like even some of the minor roles were – Big name actors. You got Nancy Travis as, as a wife in it. You got uh, the dad from Frasier as the head manager. You know, I mean. John Mahoney. John Mahoney. Yeah, Mahoney. just a huge cast. That, so tell us about this movie. Yeah, it was a great cast. Christopher Lloyd is another actor that was in there. Uh, yes. Michael Lerner. I mean, every performance, I think, is is really strong. I think, you know, hindsight, you know, I love all these movies. I'm not trying to be like, uh, you know, like a wet blanket. I just I just think that. You know, the, the most satisfying baseball movie to me is Bull Durham because it, it it sort of it stays with itself the most. And it only has really three characters that you have to stay with. And then everybody else is peripheral. I think the mistake that Eight Men Out uh, made, um, John Sales, who wrote it, also directed it, which is always, you know, problematic. I mean, I know uh, uh, the same thing happened with Bull Durham, but uh, John Sales, had, I think he had too many characters in Eight Men Out. So you, you got like 23 characters you're trying to keep track of. And a lot of us young baseball players, you know, Cusack and I kind of look the same or similar when you when you glance at us. And so I just felt like for the audience, you know, it, it was hard to keep track of who's who. I think that the movie would have benefited from a little bit of shaving down a few storylines and focusing more on the players. But, you know, that's just my opinion. I think that the photography is beautiful. I think the music's great. I think the costumes are great. And, um, you know, it was it was a low budget movie, much lower budget movie than the natural or uh, or. Uh, um, Field of Dreams or any of these other movies. The budget was about $6 million in 1987. And, you know, that to make a movie set in 1919 where you got to, you know, you need trains, you need cars, you need clothes, all these characters. It's an amazing accomplishment for $6 million. But, uh, you know, I, I think that um, the baseball is the strength of the movie. Um, I could play. Charlie Sheen was a good player. David Strathairn. Uh, the baseball is very detailed and very believable. So I think that's one of the strengths of the movie. And, and the performances of the actors, I think. Uh, so, you know, it's a movie I enjoy watching. Of, of all the many movies I've made, it's one that I can pop in and watch a chunk of it without getting too nauseous. So uh, I guess that's kind of a good sign. But, you know, I like all these movies. I don't, I don't want to come off like, you know, Mr. Critic or anything like that. I'm just, you know, they're all, you know, it is, we're trying to assess them and compare them. And so these are just my opinions of what would have made some of these movies stronger or, or where their weaknesses lie. Well, it was not a financial success when it came out, but it did become a cult favorite film, which sometimes those are better, you know, because they last the stand of time. You know, Kevin, your, your, your movie was definitely a financial success. So I'll give it credit on that one. And Paul, yours was kind of like a, it made some money, but it wasn't considered like a high financial success. But Eight Men Out definitely became a, a cult film. And gosh, you can catch it on, all sorts of services now, streaming services, the, even the free services. I watched it on uh, Pluto not too long ago. So let's move into our final movie tonight. And we're, we're going back a ways for this one. This Going back to 1942 uh, for Pride of the Yankees, starred uh, Gary Cooper, you know, fantastic actor, um, is playing Yankees great Lou Gehrig, uh, which, of course, is a sad story. Uh, uh, on the whole, that Lou Gehrig died in 1941, I believe. So about a year before this movie came out, Lou Gehrig passed away. But um, this movie received 11 Oscar nominations, which is going to top all three movies that we're talking about tonight. So, and that includes some of the big ones: big uh, best picture, best writing, uh, best actor for uh, Gary Cooper, and best actress for Teresa Wright. So quite a few Oscar noms going on there. Now, uh, as Paul had mentioned before the show started, there wasn't as many movies coming out back then, so that probably helped his cause. But American Film Institute has it at 22nd all time um, on the list of the 100 most inspiring films. So that's that's a pretty nice accomplishment there. And it's third in the sports category for top 10 films. And Garrick was named the 25th greatest hero in film. So that. That's a lot of accolades for this movie uh, right there. And who can forget the quote? 
uh, ranked 38th greatest quote by AFI. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. That's still said today uh, in people, you know, I, I'm, I think it might have been higher than, than may the force be with you, but I'm, I might be wrong with that one. So that's pretty cool. And then, you know, that was from the iconic closing of the movie where he's given his farewell speech at Yankee Stadium. You know, the, there was some real baseball players there that filmed their own parts. Babe Ruth, the real Babe Ruth was part of this. Um, Bill Dickey as well, just to, to name a couple guys there. Um, so this movie, it, it does tell the story of Lou Gehrig's sort of um, his life off the field more than so much on the field. He had an overbearing mother. She wanted him to be like an engineer and uh, go to college. He said he was going to play uh, in Hartford, which was the minor league team for the Yankees. She thought it was Harvard, you know, so a lot of, a lot of mommy issues going on. Um, but sadly, most of this movie was Hollywooded up um, and inaccurate. There's no proof that he ever promised some kid he was going to hit two home runs right after Babe Ruth had promised he was going to hit one home run. So that's kind of historically inaccurate. Um, there's some other things in there, even like like stats and stuff like that, that they didn't get entirely correct. But a fabulous acting job. It's uh, considered one of the greatest sports films of all time. DB, I know this is way before your time, but uh, I'm, I'm guessing you've seen it. Uh, you know, what do you think of the acting performances? The, the baseball wasn't real great uh, in it, um, but you got to look at the time period as well. So what are your thoughts on it? I think it's one of the most overrated movies of all time. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I'm it's... Right, I'm uh, going down today. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, it doesn't hold up well at all. You know, I, I love Gary Cooper. He's one of my favorite actors of all time, but I find this to be a really corny, uh, hackneyed movie. And we all love the story of Lou Gehrig, but uh, the, the baseball is the worst of any movie we're talking about. I mean, Gary Cooper was such an unathletic guy that they actually had to flip the logo of the Yankees uniform. He batted right-handed and he ran to third base and then they flipped the negative over. <laughs> No way. <laughs> and he was still, he's still really bad. They have to show him from like the stadium distance to, for it to even be remotely believable. He has a really bad stunt double. So, I mean, you know, it is a different time and everything, but some of my favorite movies, I mean, Citizen Kane is from that same era and it holds up right, great right. to this day. So, um, you know, and I know that's not a fair comparison of baseball movie versus one of the greatest movies ever made. But I do think that this movie escapes along on an enormous amount of goodwill, which is not entirely earned. <laughs> Well, I know you hit really, you swung the bat really well in your movie. I, I've seen it probably a hundred times, to be honest. But John Cusack did not swing the bat very well. Even when they were showing the one scene where he's just taking the warm-up swings, horrible swings. So I'm going to throw that out there just for my sake of argument. <laughs> but yeah, Charlie, Charlie Sheen could play. Charlie, uh, Oh yeah, they yeah. tried to actually build things. Charlie's character is not very important in the story. But he was a big star, so they kept trying to find ways to put him on screen. And uh, uh, so he, he was a good athlete. And Michael Rooker, uh, who played Chick Gandel, he, he's a tremendous athlete, but he's not a good baseball player. But he knew how to pretend. And, uh, you know, it just – everybody really wanted to make the first baseball movie where the baseball was up to snuff. What we didn't know is that, you know, at the same exact time, Kevin Costner was knocking it out of the park as Crash Davis in uh, Bull Durham. And he's phenomenal. I mean, he's – He's a switch hitting catcher and he's believable from both sides of the plate. He's tremendous receiving the ball and throwing the ball. He has the demeanor of a minor league baseball player. I mean, so, you know, I think those two movies have the best baseball of any, any of these movies we're talking about or any other baseball movies, except maybe major league has some good baseball in it too. And uh, for love of the game, again, Costner, you know, he's a very good, very good athlete, very good baseball player and a movie star. So, you know, he, he, I'll watch any baseball movie that guy makes. Well, you mentioned Charlie Sheen. I know Charlie, he's been quoted as saying that he actually juiced for Major League to get his fastball up another 10 miles per hour. So he was quite a good baseball player, you know, at least according to him in high school. So um, He's pretty good. He's, he's no stranger to foreign substances either. So touche, uh, <laughs> touche. All right, before we move into our vote, just a quick shout out to some movies that just missed tonight's cut. For Love of the Game was one of them. DB mentioned that. Uh, 42. Chadwick Bossman, awesome. Harrison Ford, I love. Awesome movie. Um, Bang the Drum Slowly, another old film, but pretty good film. And uh, Moneyball with Brad Pitt. You know, that's uh, 
pretty accurate as well as far as historically what was going on there. So let's move into our vote tonight. Brian, you're in my top left corner. What film you taking? Obviously, guys, as usual, you can't take your own. Right, right. Well, I mean, when I look at these films, um, you know, there, there's one that just emotionally connected with me more than the others, and, and that's Field of Dreams. I mean, you know, you, you said it's the, the, the one that can make guys cry. I mean, I, I still, there's still scenes where I got to kind of hold the tears back when I watch them, even now, you know, however how many years later. And then what it's done, you know, how it's just stayed, you know, in, in, in the mainstream and, you know, with the, with the Field of Dreams uh, uh, game that we just had here uh, not, not too long ago. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I got to go with that one. It's just, uh, it's just number one for me. So I'll go next. From an emotional standpoint, I'm going to agree with you, Brian. Um, you know, I kind of had to hold it back for <laughs> the first time I saw that movie. Um, you know, as uh, not as a child, but definitely in my later teenage years or early college years. However, I do agree with DB's comment that it's not really as much a baseball movie as some of the others we're talking about. So I think for that reason, I'm not going to vote for it, even though it does have a good emotional impact. So I am actually taking eight man out and I'm not taking it just because DB's here. I'm taking it because of the historical accuracies. I also feel that the baseball playing in it is definitely the best baseball playing from that standpoint. So Kevin. Um, Brian, you actually uh, made, I was going to do another little point for my uh, movie there, but you actually said what I was going to say, that it's still in the mainstream and we had the, the game again. Um, but uh, I'm going to have to agree with Mike. Uh, that's very rare. Um, yeah, write this down. <laughs> sibling rivalry. But, um, uh, in 50 yeah. shows, I think you've agreed with me twice. So that's, that's yeah. impressive. So eight, eight men out. It's got, it's got the better... Uh, you know, baseball playing in it and um, the accuracy of, of the history in the movie, too. Paul? Uh, I don't know. I guess Amen Out is great, but, it may, you know, the, the topic depresses me. I mean, all I can think of is Cusack's character and how he got just screwed on that. And I guess Field of Dreams, I've been to the field. It's it's not a baseball movie, but the I guess the baseball field is the star. The only drawback is that Kevin is the one arguing it. So uh, I guess I'll go Field of Dreams, although I picked my favorite movie for myself. But, uh, yeah, I guess I'll go Field of Dreams just because of the – I love the folklore of it. And then the, I watched the 8-12 game we just played, and I think it'll stay around a lot for a long time. So, DB, I'm coming to you for your vote. You can break this tie. You can vote for your own movie, or you can pick one of the other ones, and we, we end in a tie. It's your call. No, you know, I, I gotta, I, I'd say of all these movies we've talked about, the, the most satisfying movie is Field of Dreams, for sure. Um, it, it, you know, it's so emotionally uh, accurate and, and effective. The music's great. Uh, the, the cinematography's great. The acting is great. Every performance is spot on. Anytime you can hear James Earl Jones say baseball, it's a, you know, it's a good day. So, uh, you know, I think Field of Dreams is tremendous. And, you know, the, the baseball aspect of it is, uh, you know, it's, it's put to the side intentionally because they got more important uh, fish to fry, you know, all the issues that the characters are dealing with. And I think it's a phenomenal movie and I think it deserves all the praise it's gotten over the years and especially recently with that game, you know, that wasn't the first game ever at the Field of Dreams. I actually played in the first game after the movie was finished. Um, there was a, a Hollywood versus retired Major League game like two years after the movie came out. Oh, wow. And uh, some of the pros that were there were Joe Pepitone and Bob Gibson and Fergie Jenkins. And uh, it was really, really great. And we had on, on the actor side, it was me and Meatloaf and uh, a couple other guys. Um, uh, Chad Lowe was there. It was really a fun, fun day. And um, and everybody was trying to figure out who was going to be the first guy to hit one into the corn. And we were all taking BP and, you know, the corn is actually, you know, they, they built that other field to have the Yankee White Sox game, obviously, but in the movie, the corn is really kind of close. It's not, it's not, a, it's more like a, you know, two, two sixty in the power alleys, you know, it's not really a, a bomb to hit it in the corn. So when BP, we're all trying to, you know, we're hitting them in the corn and Bob Gibson was the starting pitcher for the hall of famers and the baseball guys. And he didn't like a bunch of actors, like, uh, you know, thinking they were going to hit a home run off of him. So he was kind of annoyed by that. And uh, I was batting third. 
and I had hit several in batting practice in there. So I dug in. I was like, I'm going to hit one in the corner off Bob Gibson. And the first pitch, he threw it right at my head. It must have been 88, 90 miles an hour. Like, it was not a friendly. <laughs> and he he dumped me down good. And then he stared at me. And it was like it was like the real experience of hitting off of Bob Gibson. He stared down at me like, don't you ever dig in on me. And uh, <laughs> and then he kind of leaned over. And he just goes like this, like, uh, you know, I'm going to, because I figured the next pitch is going to be a curveball. I'm going to look stupid on that. And he just gave me the fastball coming at you. And he threw one down the middle. And I just, you know, hit one like a single. And I took my single. I wasn't trying to, you know, so, uh, so I did happen to get the first hit at the Field of Dreams in the, in the first game that was ever there. That's awesome. Nice. Well, a win for Kevin tonight. So, Kevin, you get first question in our QA for, for DB about his career. Awesome. Um, so I want, I want to take you back to uh, 92, uh, the cutting edge. Um, Love it. So I read, I, I read that uh, <clears throat> you and your co-star didn't know how to skate going into this movie. And I'm just curious, you know, how was that, you know, training to, to get to be able to look like you're an actual skater for that movie? And, and what was that? What was that experience like filming that? Yeah, that was. I had about three movies early in my career. Eight Man Hour, I spent all this time learning to hit left-handed, like five and a half months. And then Lonesome Dove, I didn't know how to ride a horse. I spent about four or five months learning how to ride a horse, believably, to be a, a you know a, a top cowboy uh, that my character was. And then the Cutting Edge, learning to skate. So that we had three months, and uh, neither Moira and I could skate one lick. And MGM, who produced the movie, rented out this ice rink in Manhattan. I was living in Manhattan and we're, we're both from Long Island. She was living on Long Island and they rented out this rink called Sky Rink, which was like 47th Street and 9th Avenue in New York. And, and it was on the seventh floor. It was kind of weird taking an elevator up to play hockey. But so they rented out that rink for us and we had it every morning and we had coaches and trainers and um, we worked our butts off and it really made the movie better. Not, not, they still use doubles. I mean, Moira worked on figure skating. I worked more on the hockey side. And she got to a point where she was landing after three months, she was landing single axle jumps, which, you know, it's no big deal. Like it's not going to get you the Olympics. Like if you're a nine-year-old figure skater and you've been skating for three years, you're landing axle jumps. But the idea that she was a grown woman and that she had learned that in three months was unbelievable. Um, and, you know, we both were, were, we had learned how to, you know, sort of fake it uh, well enough to make the movie. And then she broke her leg. So landing a jump, so she couldn't skate at all in the movie. She has a tremendous stunt double, but it meant they had to use me more than they had planned to. So um, a lot of trickeration in the photography. A lot of uh, times you see me skating, I'm skating with Moira's double. Um, or else sometimes I'm skating with the skating coordinator, Robin Cousins, who was uh, a British champion figure skater. He would be like, you wouldn't see who was in front of me. But when you skate with a really good double in pairs figure skating, or like if an amateur skates with a pro, you imitate their stride and, you know, it makes you look a lot better. So uh, that movie has a lot of, it's too bad they don't have all the behind the scenes stuff that they have these days because we had some really cool um, old school kind of trickery that uh, to make all that stuff come off. Brian, go ahead. Uh, you, you were in my favorite movie of all time, uh, Lonesome Dove. I mean, it was packed with stars on that cast as well. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones, Robert Duvall, Ricky Schroeder, Danny Glover, Steve Buscemi, of course, the beautiful Diane Lane. Um, so what was it like to be part of that amazing project? That was just a great, great experience. I mean, everybody that was there knew it was going to be something really special. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I'm from Long Island. And uh, Tommy Lee Jones found out that some kid from Long Island who didn't know how to ride a horse was playing Dish Boggett. And he didn't like that at all because he's like a seventh generation Texan. And he, he, de he decided that he was going to get rid of me. So he went to CBS and said, well, you got to get rid of this guy. We need a real cowboy. And CBS said, you know what, he, we're keeping him because, you know, I was one of the, I was like a teeny bopper, whatever. I was, I had a good name at that time. And, you know, they've sort of thought I was good for the project. So Tommy Lee decided, I think that he was going to get me injured. So he took me on a cattle roundup at his ranch and put me on a, 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 an unbroken polo pony. And the horse threw me and luckily I landed on my feet. But I think his plan was I'd get injured and go, you know, limping home to New York and they'd get some kid from uh, Amarillo, Texas to play the part. But uh, his evil plan didn't work out. Paul, go ahead. DB, is there a, a movie, a role that it, you were either too busy to maybe go for or you kind of passed on? And then once that movie came out and you saw that role, you were like, oh, maybe I, I kind of regret not getting that or going for that or something like that. I mean, there's, there's always ones that, you know, the getaway that, you know, 
for one reason or another, you don't end up in them or, or, you know, I, I wasn't offered so many movies where I passed on them, but there were a few that, you know, that, that I missed out on. But one of the ones uh, is home alone. Um, they sent me the script to play the part uh, opposite Joe Pesci, the one of the burglars. Uh, and, uh, and I just didn't get that movie. I just, I thought it was really kind of dumb. And, you know, Macaulay Culkin was such a star. He made that whole thing work. And Daniel Stern who played the part was tremendous. I mean, I think he probably did better than I would have done, but I definitely see that movie and I'm like, Oh, that would have been it would have been fun to be in there. Uh, can't say no to a John Hughes film. Oh man. No. <laughs> so normally when I do this show, I'm wearing a hat and it says The Chosen on it, which is my favorite TV show of all time. It's written, directed by Dallas Jenkins. So I wanted to ask you, how was it to work for him on The Resurrection of Gavin Stone, which is also one of my favorite movies? And what was it like to work on a Christian film? Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, Dallas is a great guy. I knew him for many years, and we both moved to uh, Illinois around the same time. And he reached out to me and he said, hey, I'm making this movie. You want to you wanna do it? We're making it at my church. And I was like, okay, well, where's your church? He said it's in Elgin. And I thought it would be like, uh, you know, a little church on the corner. But it's this massive, you know, church. And, uh, you know, they had a lot of resources. And I really like the script of this. You know, it's about a guy who's a, he's a kind of a Hollywood scammer, like kind of a male Lindsay Lohan who keeps getting in trouble. And, uh, you know, the judge, for people who haven't seen it, the judge basically has ordered him, you know, you either can go pick up trash on the highway or you got to go volunteer at this church, this big church. And he figures, well, I could probably scam the church easier than the, uh, you know, the prison guards. So uh, I'll take this, uh, this opportunity. And then the church is doing an Easter pageant and he auditions for the role of Jesus and he gets the part. So it, it's kind of a good setup because the, I play the pastor and my character knows that he's a scammer, but at the same time, I feel like, you know, he might find redemption if he, if he uh, you know, embodies as an actor the role of Jesus. And so it's a nice movie. And, and uh, it's certainly a Christian movie. But what I think is good about it is it avoids a lot of the, um, the pitfalls of the Christian movie where it's, uh, there's always this, it gets very heavy handed in most Christian movies. And I think what, what's great about what Dallas does in The Resurrection of Gavin Stone and even more in The Chosen is it's not heavy handed. He's a, he's a really good storyteller and he's a really good actor and he's a really good writer. And so all those things allow him to avoid, you know, making these kind of like smack you in the face Christian stories. A lot of Christian movies don't have the greatest acting. So he does very good with that, getting good and good actors. Yeah. Kevin, one of your favorite wrestlers, HBK, Shawn Michaels was in that movie. So do you have time for one more each? Sure. More. All right, Kevin, go. So you've been in quite a few movies and, and quite a few TV shows. Is there one role that sticks out to you that was like your favorite and you really enjoyed filming it? What, which one would that be? Well, other than the ones we talked about, Cutting Edge and Eight Men Out and Lonesome Dove are probably my three favorites that I've ever had. Um, but there was another show called Harsh Realm, which was uh, Chris Carter, the guy who did the X-Files and Millennium. It was a show that only stayed on for nine episodes on Fox. And it was a really, really good show, but it was really expensive. And we didn't get good ratings right away. And Rupert Murdoch did not get the show. And But anyway, I played a character in that show called Mike Pinocchio. And he's a little bit like Han Solo. And the movie was ahead of its time. The show was ahead of its time. It was. It's a little bit like The Matrix. Like the Army has this game where it's a training game where you get put into suspended animation. And then your, your essence gets inserted into this training game. But if you get killed inside the training game, you're dead. And it was really a really a good show. And Max Martini's in it, who directed uh, the movie. That's where I met him. He directed the Manson Brothers, Midnight Zombie Massacre. Terry O'Quinn is in it, who was uh, uh, Moira Kelly's dad in The Cutting Edge. And he's a great actor. And it was just a really, really good show. And I just wish it had, it had gotten more of a chance. So there's nine episodes. And uh, also Michelle McLaren made her directing debut. She became the person who, uh, Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones, she's one of the great TV directors now. And sure she's doing features too i'm just not aware of it um and uh so it was a really really great great show and uh, i think that if it had been given a chance to go um it would have it would have done uh better tobin bell is in it he you know it's like every ep every episode had like great guest actors and it's beautifully filmed and you know so that that was kind of the one that was a disappointment when that got canceled right um before you became an actor who who were your favorite actors and who were the ones that you sort of looked up to and you know sort of uh uh influenced you well before i had any idea about being an actor uh i got confused that like my grandfather died when i was like four years old 
and he fought in World War One, and he liked he was a little bit of a dancer and a singer. And and so when I was really little, my dad showed me Yankee Doodle Dandy on TV, and I thought that Jimmy Cagney was my uncle. I mean, my grandfather. And I was like, so I got a little confused for a few years. I thought so. James Cagney was the first actor I was ever really aware of uh, for kind of weird reasons. But um, I stuck with him for a very long time. When I became an actor, um, I still really admired him and tried to model some of my what my technique was off of him. And also Humphrey Bogart is uh, is my all time favorite because I, I think he's the greatest. And uh, I, I mean, I think he's still underrated as an actor. Like people people treat him like, oh, yeah, he's bogey just doing bogey. But there's an awful lot of range and subtlety between the Maltese Falcon and African Queen and Treasure Sierra Madre, the Kane Mutiny Court Marshal. I mean, there's a lot of subtle gradations between his different performances that, you know, I think he really was a master of film acting. Well, I represented in a prior show, uh, Chris Chelios, and I, I saw where you were really close friends with him. I think he's the godfather to uh, Cade, if, if that's accurate. And, yeah, that's um, right. I think you were pretty good friends with Grant Jennings, who we'd had on. Is hockey something you were really interested in? And that, when you learned how to skate for cutting edge, did you ever get out there with any of these guys? Yeah, you know, I was always a hockey fan growing up. I grew up a New York Ranger fan, and, you know, I got to know Rod Gilbert, who we just lost. Uh, great, great man. And, and uh, you know, I was always a fan. So when the cutting edge came along, it was a fun opportunity. And uh, Chris Chelios is actually in the movie for a minute. He and I had been friends for five or six years at that point. And uh, he came up to Toronto where we were filming. I thought it would be funny if, if he was the guy that that injured my character and knocked him out of hockey. I thought that would be funny for all the hockey fans. And so uh, it, we were, they were going to film it that way. And then he was there about six hours. And he was like, I am so bored. I'm leaving. So uh, he ended up – so they had somebody else actually run me. But, uh, you know, that, that it's a long day when you're making a movie. And I would have my skates on for – and Moira as well when after she healed her broken leg. You know, sometimes you have your skates on for 10, 12 hours and, and your feet are swollen. It's You know, it's not that comfortable. But – uh, so, so yeah, after the movie came out, I was got, I got invited to play in a lot of uh, celebrity games and uh, Michael J. Fox was up before he got sick. He would always play and they had this Hollywood all-stars team. And, and with my, my great friend, Kiefer Sutherland, who's one of my favorite people in Hollywood uh, of all my peers. Um, he's just one of the greatest guys. And I also think he's a terrific actor and now he's making music and he's just a great, uh, great, great guy to, you know, to sit next to in a hockey locker room. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of great memories from those days uh, with uh, Alex Trebek was on that team. Um, really, really great person. And, you know, we played, we play against, we played a game at the Boston Garden against Cam Neely and Terry O'Reilly. And oh, wow. it was just really, really, really fun. And, and uh, you know, just to get out there with those guys. And, you know, I think they enjoy getting out there too. And so uh, those are some great memories. And I, you know, cutting edge brought a lot into my life. Yeah. So we'll get you out of here with this. Um, I, I want you to tell me about your, your new movie coming out this Friday, of course. Um, Manson Brothers, Midnight Zombie Massacre. That's a long title, but I, I like that. That's, uh, that sounds pretty scary. But since I'm talking about scary, the first movie that ever scared me and gave me nightmares is Fire in the Sky. I don't know what it was like filming it, but the scene where you're like kind of like being pulled down the hallway and then you're on the table, like, can, can you walk me through that? Because that freaked me out. And even watching it as an adult, it still freaks me out. Yeah, Fire in the Sky was, uh, was a really cool uh, setup and a really cool script. And all those visual effects were done uh, in Marin County with Industrial Light and Magic. So I, you already knew who they were. You know, they were the the state-of-the-art uh, shop. And so I was very excited to get to play this part. And they built these amazing sets. And there's very little uh, digital effects at that time, like it's 1993, I think, or 94. And, and you know, so th those sets are, are real sets. And I was on wires suspended from the ceiling usually and um, to simulate the uh, zero gravity. So it was hard work, you know, because you know, you gotta, if you, if you just hang on the wire, you look like you, you give away the gag, you know, you, the audience, even when they take it out with the, uh, when they scratch the wire out of the film, you can tell if, if the actor's not, you have to kind of keep your body really straight or, or just you, you, the, the audience kind of instinctively knows that the wires are coming from your hips. So you have to kind of hide that with your body language and it's, it's, it's hard work, but I, you, you sort of knew that when I saw the sets and you know, one, the one scene where they dragged me through the thing and you see the little sunglasses, the little eyeglasses spinning around. That was right there on the set. And I thought, oh, my God, that's just like right out of a nightmare. Like it was just such a cool idea and that they had the, the weightless eyeglasses spinning around in the UFO. So so, I, you know, I just thought while we were making that, this is going to be really cool. 
And uh, unfortunately, I think they spent all the money on the on that sequence when I'm on the spaceship. And then the rest of the movie was we made it in kind of in a hurry. So uh, it, it's it's still a good movie. But that that 12 or 15 minutes, I think, is really, really great. Well, for someone who watched it uh, in my school days, uh, let me tell you, it, it it worked, man. It was scary. Hey, it was good. <laughs> well, thank you so much, DB. Oh, yeah. Tell us about your new movie. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, uh, Max Martini, I mentioned, uh, we, we start, we work together on Harsh Realm, which if anybody's curious, uh, get those DVDs and pop them in. Uh, it, it's a really good show. Um, and anyway, Max is a really terrific actor. Uh, he's been in a lot of stuff and he's a great guy. And so uh, he told me about this story that had been given to him by another guy who lives here in Chicago, Mike Carey. And, uh, uh, and Mike and I did Chirac together, Spike Lee movie, uh, where I played the mayor of Chicago. And, uh, and it was, you know, a kind of a weird musical movie about gang violence. And it was a, you know, it's an interesting movie, but it didn't really work entirely for a lot of people. But anyway, Mike and I became friends on that movie. And then when the script came around, he, he, he told me that he used to be a professional wrestler, which I didn't know. And like back in the early 90s, he was uh, a wrestler named, you know, Skull Manson. And so the idea of this movie is that, you know, these kind of uh, wrestlers who were semi-favorite famous on this local wrestling circuit, want to make a comeback and they got to get big fast. They don't have any money. So they buy a bunch of steroids from China and the steroids turn everybody into zombies. So it's, it's just the right amount of stupid that, uh, that it, it kind of works. It's like a midnight movie. You get yourself a glass of wine or your favorite substance. And uh, I think it's a very satisfying, you know, genre type movie that, you know, especially, you know, midnight movie. And again, that's coming out September 10th. That's this Friday. It's going to be released in 10 cities, and it's also on demand. So if it's not coming out in your city, I, know it, I don't know if it's coming out down here in Tampa or not. I'll have to check. Make sure you see it on demand. Thank you so much, D.B. Sweeney, for joining us tonight. This was one of the coolest moments of my life. I appreciate that a lot. And uh, just, just an honor to have you on. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you guys all. You guys are really astute uh, film panelists. And uh, it was really, uh, that was great. A great experience to hear everybody's opinions about everything. And thank you all for being on. And I uh, hope we get to do it again. Thanks, DB. Everybody who's watching, make sure you hit subscribe on whatever you're watching on. Have a good night.